0: Thanks Ruth, thanks for your prayer, thanks for correcting us that I think we can bring anything to eat next week at the potluck, but um, chili especially because you can win something if you bring chili. <clears throat> so if that's important to you, bring chili or soup. If it's not important to you to win something, enjoy whatever you'd like. This morning we are, uh, we are continuing our sermon series looking at all the things God cares about. And looking at how God directs our priorities. And this morning, as I said earlier, we're talking about exhaustion. Often, I think we we wrongly think that we get exhausted because we're busy with trivial things or because we're busy with uh, unimportant things. But often, we're busy with important things. We're busy with needful things. And we don't know how to not do that. We don't always have the luxury of just stopping or withdrawing or taking a break. We have expectations, responsibilities and uh, things, time, energy that people and others expect on us, expect from us. excuse me. In my personal devotions this week, I sat for a day with uh, Peter's words to God's people in First Peter. Peter says, "Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles abstain from sinful desires which wage against which wage war against your soul and then he says live such good lives among the pagans among the people of the world that though they accuse you of doing wrong they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits you if you're tired the words from peter and the holy spirit might seem just like one more thing to do i'm already busy you tell yourself, I'm already overworked, I'm already stressed, and now I'm supposed to live such a good life that people see it and praise God. Who needs that extra pressure? But maybe you can think of someone in your life who lives such a good life that it is a joy and a blessing for you, that it doesn't seem like pressure. I can think of many people particular this past week, it was the 81st birthday of a lady in Colorado whose name is Sue. Sue was like a mother to Kaylee and I when we lived in Colorado. And I talked with her this week for her birthday. And she told me about all the people she was serving, the games she was playing, the young students she was discipling, the people who she was caring for. She was doing so much and so much good. And not only was she not exhausted, it seemed like it was a joy. When we work from our own human strength, when we work from our own experiences or work to get our own way, we do get tired. And then when we experience some shock or pain or a surprise, we get even more tired. If someone asks me to do something for others that I do for Kaylee each week, for my wife, I pretty quickly get tired and yet when i do those same things for someone i love it's a joy my service and work for my life for my wife is animated by joy and by love for others i love or others we don't love it might not be the same in using these two examples i want to invite you to consider your own heart Not just what are you doing and what can you stop, but why are you doing what you're doing? And what is God's priority for your life? Make no mistake, loving, passionate, godly people get tired. And there's all kinds of different reasons why we can be exhausted. There's the physical and mental exhaustion that we most often think of. But there's also spiritual exhaustion, or maybe you think of it as emotional exhaustion. Sometimes our hearts just can't take any more of a difficult situation. We might be exhausted because we surpass some limit that God has for us. We're walking only in our strength or our power, or we're pursuing sin or selfishness. As 1 Peter says, abstain from those things. We might be overwhelmed because of some external situation that's way beyond our control. And so we feel powerless or desperate. We find it hard to trust God. We might be exhausted because we haven't taken regular time to rest our physical bodies, to rest our racing minds, our emotions, or to rest and enjoy spiritual fellowship with God and God's people or we might be exhausted because we've lost confidence in our way. We've lost confidence in God's direction or God's leading, we're questioning our faith, our life situation, or the past decisions that have led us to this point. To be sure, there's many more reasons why we might be tired or exhausted. And each of our situations is unique and poignant. Not all of our exhaustion is the same, and none of us are the same to God. We're not just a wash of faces that God treats uh, all with a broad brush. We can't deal with every particular situation here this morning, but if you'd like to talk with a pastor or another leader in our church, I want to encourage you to do so. Myself and Pastor Harrison always love talking with you after the service, uh, and we would love to do that informally or to more formally sit down sometime during the week. But because we can't talk about every situation, this morning I want to encourage us with God's action in one particular case study. The life and the early exhaustion and the early life of the Apostle Paul. Think about for a moment what you know about the Apostle Paul. You may have heard the story of the Apostle Paul that I'm going to call a flat story. It's flat because it's one-dimensional, it's s- smooth and direct, it's not especially interesting and it doesn't seem relatable or compelling. In this story, Saul was a passionate guy, a passionate, passionate Jewish guy. Saul persecuted Christians until one day God knocked him off his horse, gave him a new name and then everything changed. Saul's name was changed to Paul. Paul went on a bunch of mission trips, he converted a bunch of people, and basically he was the reason for the whole of the early church and for all of its existence and growth. Have you heard that story before? Well, for starters, that story is missing a lot of detail. And more than that, there's some things in it that are just flat out wrong. There's so much to Paul's story that we normally get wrong that I couldn't cram it all into the sermon this morning. In fact, this sermon was, it's about 2,300 words this morning and it started at 4,000 and I had to keep cutting and cutting and cutting. So there's always more to say. You're welcome for not going on for 40 minutes. But I want to focus on, hopefully, what's most important and some of the key details. As it turns out, Paul was persecuting Christians passionately. He wasn't well known and feared for it. And God did get a hold of Saul on his way to Damascus. On this road, Saul had this amazing conversion experience. And let's not forget that Saul was actually going to Damascus in order to collaborate with Jews in order to put Christians in jail. When Paul, or Saul, excuse me, finally arrives in Damascus, he goes to the Jewish synagogue and shares his amazing experience after a, few, after a week or two. But the people he meets there didn't have his same experience. They weren't amazed by God the way that Saul was, and they weren't ready to join him in his new convictions. They thought, the synagogue, they thought Saul was supposed to help them in their goal to arrest the Christians, the the upstarts, the problem creators. But now Saul had become a Christian. Acts tells us that this group of people were baffled and astonished. And after many days, they conspire to get rid of him. Let's read. We're going to read just a little bit of this story. It's Acts chapter 9. Uh, You can read the whole thing on your own time. We're going to read just verses 23 through 30. So after many days had gone by... There was this conspiracy among the Jews to kill Saul, to get rid of him. But Saul learned about their plan. And so day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. They didn't want him to come and they didn't want him to go. But his followers, Paul's, or Saul's followers, took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he later came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples there. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek Jews, but they tried to kill him too. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea, which is a port, and they sent him on a boat off to Tarsus. Acts tells us that Paul preached passionately and fearlessly, but that he saw little results. That in fact, it led to uh, hardship for him. Acts then moves on with the action of the story and moves on to Peter and what Peter was doing. But we find out later from Paul himself that a lot more actually happened during that time. Paul says in Galatians in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, he says, When my God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being, So this is the middle of that story that we just read in Acts. Paul says, I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but first I went to Arabia, the desert. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, the disciple Peter, and stayed with him for 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother, I assure you before the Lord, before God, that I am writing what I am writing you is no lie. So as I just did for you, historians and theologians put these two texts in the New Testament together and realize that those few verses in Acts that we read together span almost 5 years. After Saul's conversion to Christianity, he spent 3 days blind in Damascus waiting for Ananias a messenger, a disciple from God to come. Then when Ananias, through the Holy Spirit, gave Saul back his sight, he spent a couple days excitedly preaching the good news that God showed him. Paul was passionate, but that did not go well. After only a few days, the people in the city tried to kill him. And so he fled to Arabia, the wilderness, the desert. Between the Arabian wilderness and going back to Damascus, Paul tells us, and history, the, the, the chronology seems to line up, that it was three years, three full years after his conversion, before Saul visited Jerusalem. And when he, as he says, when he did, it was only basically Barnabas who was a friend to him. Paul visited with Peter, with Cephas, uh, and with James for a few weeks, but most of the believers were afraid of him, not really believing that he was a disciple. Maybe this adds a little bit of texture to the story of Saul's life. After his immediate conversion and all of his excitement, three years go by, three years of people persecuting him, pushing him away, not wanting to hear. And then when he leaves, as we read in Acts chapter 9, the disciples. Friendly, but keeping keeping him at arm's length, put him on a boat, and he goes on a boat to Tarsus. Tarsus, if you know the biblical story, if you know about Paul, Tarsus is where Paul was born. It's where he was from. Tarsus isn't where the Jewish leaders called Paul to go, and it wasn't where God called Paul to go. It's a good guess, and it is a guess, but it's a good guess that Paul went home to Tarsus for a year the way that we might pack up our things and go home. He was tired. He was exhausted. He had had this amazing picture from the Lord. Nothing came of it. No one wanted to hear from it. After three years in the desert and one more try with God's people in Jerusalem, he packed up his things and he went home to Tarsus. Another year goes by before Acts 11 happens. Acts 11 tells us that Barnabas, Acts 11, this is verses 25 and 26, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. No one knew where he was. They had lost track of him. But when Barnabas found Saul, he brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year, that's the fifth year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So let's just recap briefly a moment here. Acts 9 and then on to 11. And if we add in Galatians, Acts 9 takes five years and condenses it down into just a few verses. In these five years, Paul's life has turned upside down. His friends and his family have abandoned him. When they tried to kill him, they weren't just trying to end his life. They were also kicking him out of the Jewish community, of their family and their fellowship groups. Paul's new people, the Christians, these supposed followers of Jesus, well, they don't trust him. Paul lives in the wilderness or in the desert for a time. Then he goes back to Damascus where he doesn't know anybody and most of the Christians don't trust him. Then he's found by Barnabas there, who brings him to Jerusalem for a short time. But it's a rather uncomfortable visit because even the Christian leaders there don't want much to do with him. So after two weeks or 15 days, they put him on a boat, they send him uh, home to Tarsus. But Barnabas comes and finds him, brings him to Jerusalem for a or uh, brings him, excuse me, to Antioch. And settles him in this new place halfway between his home in Tarsus and the city of Jerusalem, and they start work, Saul and Barnabas, there. What an exhausting and discouraging start to the story that many of us know very well. We can see when we read the rest of the story of the book of Acts and read the rest of Paul's letters that Paul, or God, excuse me, did indeed use Saul and later called Paul, powerfully. Just as an aside, his name wasn't changed to Paul when he converted. Read the book of Acts. There's a very interesting story about how and where his name was changed, and I'll tell you after the service if you're interested. I've gone into great detail this morning about the beginning of Saul's life because many of us, I think, probably don't know that Paul went through a serious period after his conversion, of being exhausted and discouraged. Saul needed, and God gave him, an encourager, Barnabas. Barnabas means son of encouragement, and Barnabas is not his only name either. It's only with Barnabas' help that Saul begins to come out of his discouragement and find God's strength. Saul cannot, or at least does not, find God's strength and encouragement on his own. Barnabas' name, as I said, means son of encouragement, and God brings Paul encouragement through the Holy Spirit and through Barnabas. I spend all this time on just the start of the Apostle Paul's story, because like the story of Paul's life, your life and my life, are not flat or linear. There are gaps in our lives and backgrounds to our stories that are not known, or at least not known widely to others. Our lives are not transformed overnight. Our problems don't evaporate when God meets us. We don't see the outside results of others' stories, or we do see the outside results of other stories. We see the outside results of others' travels or others' experiences, but we don't know what goes on inside. We do not know others' hearts. Just as they don't know our exhaustion or discouragement, the many manifold reasons, we also do not know theirs. And here we might find some result and some way forward for our exhaustion and our discouragement. If we're working and living in human strength and for our own purposes as individuals, then our reward is two things, exhaustion and the fruit of our labor, whatever we are able to accomplish. If we're working hard for something to boast about, for something to prove to others, for something that's good to provide for those we love, if that's our cause, then our work is our reward. And that's where it ends. It doesn't mean we're working on bad things or evil things or unimportant things. But if we're working in our own strength, we will find results that are limited by our own strength. But if we're living in God's strength, and if we're guided by God's Spirit, then we can even boast about our weaknesses. Because God's power is powerfully at work in our weaknesses and despite our exhaustion. And God's power matters far more than our own power and even than our own weakness. Paul, many times in his later letters especially, later in his life, talks about how God's power is made perfect in his weakness. How God was powerfully at work even when he was suffering, struggling, and in prison. You could put it another way and say that even when we are exhausted, we don't always get to choose to stop. We don't always get to choose to stop doing the thing or to step out of the situation. That is hard. But we do get to choose who we carry on with. We do get to choose who we walk with in the midst of our exhaustion and struggles. In the midst of Saul's discouragement and exhaustion, God meets him. God brings Barnabas to Saul. God does the work of transformation and empowerment and encouragement. God brings Barnabas, the son of encouragement, to Saul. Many devotions and other sermons I've read or heard on this topic encourage people at this point to say, Now go and look for, Bar- go and look for your Barnabas. Go and look for your son of encouragement. Look for the person who encourages you. But I don't think that's quite right. At least that's not what happens in this story. God sent Barnabas to Paul or to Saul. God sent Barnabas when Saul was discouraged. God sent an encouragement and an empowerment to Saul when Saul was exhausted. When Saul wasn't looking. You see, even when Saul wasn't looking for God... God was looking for Saul. If you're exhausted, you don't need to go first try and find some other person who can encourage you or help you or buoy you up. You first need to look for God because he has been chasing after you for quite some time. If you are physically tired or mentally tired, perhaps it's because you're working too hard. Perhaps it's because you think the world or the solution to the big problem or the needs of others that you care for depends only on you. But you are not God. I'm not God. Humility helps us to know our physical and our mental limits. Humility is not about feeling bad for ourselves or or pushing ourselves or ourselves down. Humility is about recognizing honestly who we are and the limits that God has given us. And if God has been chasing after you, then perhaps also He has been chasing after those you love, those you serve, and offering solutions and wisdom and ways forward to the things and the people who you care for. If you're exhausted, What would happen if you embraced your limits as a gift from God rather than as hurdles that you have to somehow find a way to overcome? What if your limits reminded you that God is all-powerful, that God is all-loving, and that God is more than able to do all we ask or imagine even and especially when you are not? Whether it's because you're overwhelmed by some external situation, because you haven't rested, or because you've lost confidence or lost your way. When we are exhausted, we don't always get to stop. Life goes on, others depend on us. We have expectations in our job, in our families, many things going on in our lives. When you are exhausted, you don't just get to stop moving. But you do get to choose who you are walking with. Or to use Jesus' words, who you are in a yoke with. Maybe these words have, from Jesus have already come to mind for you. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus uses a picture of a yoke in two ways here. The first, as a yoke, it was a metaphorical use by Jews used uh, used by rabbis to talk about their teaching and their way that they gave to their disciples. Every rabbi's teaching had uh, was called a yoke. It was the teaching and the way of life that the disciples were supposed to put on their shoulders and as they followed that rabbi. And so what Jesus is saying to his disciples is that there are a whole lot of ways to live your life. If there's any number of people that you can look around in the world and, and use them as an example for in your physical life, in your emotional health, in your political views. But Jesus says, my yoke, my way is better, easier, and gentler than theirs. And you will find rest for your souls. The second thing about this picture of a yoke that Jesus uses is that more so than today and more so than our experiences, Jesus was talking to people who knew what it was literally to yoke an animal and plow a field. And in Jesus' day, the yokes that were used always had two animals in them. Two animals were always used side by side to plow a field. There was an older, sometimes bigger, often bigger, uh, stronger, more experienced animal. And then there was a younger, weaker, more immature animal who was learning the way from the older, stronger one. A younger animal who went into the yoke by itself would just go uh, wild all up and down the field. But the older, more experienced animal knew the way, could plow straight paths, and could help the younger one uh, find his way or its way around that field. Jesus invites you when you are exhausted, when you're sick of, of wandering on your own way and you don't know which way is up or which way to go, Jesus invites you to look to him and to follow his leading. Not to give up. Not to stop walking, but also not to do it in your own strength. Jesus challenges you to walk alongside him as he directs your life and he carries the brunt of the load. I want to conclude with just a couple examples again uh, this morning before we come to God in prayer. The first one is again, for one, once more, looking at the Apostle Paul. Saul, and later Paul, thought that he was pursuing God. He went to Damascus, uh, paid for and and, and financed and expecting by the Jews who are God-fearing people. Paul thought that he was pursuing God. He intended to pursue God, but found out on the way that his path was totally opposite to what God had called him to do. After Paul experienced Christ, He realized he was wrong. He didn't start his work with Christ right away. It took Paul three years to get over the shock and the challenge of his situation, to be prepared to walk as the inexperienced one in Christ's yoke and depend on Christ to lead and guide him. What about us? As individuals, all of us are children. All of us have a mom and a dad somewhere. We may know them well. We may not know them at all. Some of us have kids that we love, or others we are responsible for. We try, but the result with our children is always different from what we hope. Some kids are rebellious, others are limited. They're ignoring us. They're stubborn. They're unreasonable. Parents might say to their kids, or at least think to themselves, kids, don't you know how much time and energy I've put into you? And it's all coming to nothing. I'm exhausted. As a parent, you'll never stop loving your kids, even though you're exhausted. You will carry many burdens for them out of love even when they rebel, even when they do not ask you to help or ask nicely. This is how God is with you, too. You will never grow up enough to stop being God's child, even his adult child, his rebellious and stubborn and limited and unreasonable child who he loves very much. And your life will always be better. If you attend to the yoke of Christ, to watch where he is going and to learn from him and follow his ways. We follow his ways as we listen to his word. We learn his ways as we discern the Spirit's leading together with other Christians today. One more example before we close. We have talked about Paul. We've talked about our uh, personal lives and uh, just a word about our denominational life as well. In the life of this church, our denominational situation, our, the external situation to our congregation, is bringing exhaustion to many people. We wonder to ourselves how long can people fight over the truth and still not agree? How is it that we're struggling for such a long time and still not seeing clear wisdom? Again, there's far more to say, but could it be in this case that we are exhausted because we are pursuing our own way, because we're walking in human strength, or because we're talking so much in one area and doing so little? God may be calling us all to humble ourselves and to walk, to actually move. When you're exhausted, you don't get to stop moving. And often, and perhaps in our denominational situation, we find that we are exhausted because we have stopped moving. Because we stuck, we're stuck and we're honed in and focused in on one little area and neglecting so much of the life that God has for us and the love that He calls us to give to one another and to all of His people, all the people He's created. When you're exhausted, you don't get to stop moving, but you do get to choose who you are in the yoke with. Jesus invites you when you are exhausted to look to him, to follow his leading, not in your own strength, but to walk alongside him as he directs your life and as he carries the brunt of the load. We had some silence before in our service, and I just want to invite you to bow your heads just for a moment A brief moment of silence to reflect on what God may be saying to you. And then I'll close our time in prayer. God, we come to you with humble thanks. We do not deserve the joy to gather with your people and to know that even when only two or three of us are here, your spirit is with us. We are far more than that. Here in person, online, in various places, we are joined together by your spirit, empowered, instructed, and taught by you. In the various situations and perspectives and experiences of our lives, we marvel that you can and do speak to and lead each one of us. Though we walk different places, though we uh, have different passions, you call us each and all, and you direct us with your love, with your care, Show us in our walking and in our ways how your yoke is far better than any other. Give us the humility to step into the yoke with you to allow you to lead us as individuals and as a community, as a church. And may we always look to you and praise you and give you the glory for all you provide as we surrender our lives to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.